Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. We too would like to see a merman. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. In this fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror movies in depth, reminiscing about teenage decisions and exploring why teenagers, and especially teenage girls, make some of the most compelling protagonists and villains of the genre. We're now way past halfway through the season. The year is 2011. We're on the verge of a turning point in horror. Torture porn has come and gone, the grindhouse aesthetic was but a blip, Why horror is on the out, and we're about to enter a new level of meta-ness in horror filmmaking. Is The Cabin in the Woods a teen horror, you ask? Well, kind of. I think it counts. Maybe about 50% of it. And if only because I was desperate to talk about this film. And joining me on this existential deep dive is the wonderful Steph McKenna. A quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work and get occasional bonus episodes. The next one coming out will be a deep dive review of Julieta Corneau's Titan. If you don't want to support us over on Patreon, absolutely no problem. But if you could take a few seconds and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, hugely appreciated. It really helps keep us in the charts and it really helps people discover the show. And if you're new to the podcast, then please keep in mind that we talk spoilers pretty much from the very beginning. This is especially important with this film. I've warned you, if you haven't seen The Cabin in the Woods, there are spoilers ahead. And with all of that said, please enjoy our in-depth discussion of The Cabin in the Woods. Steph, I'm so glad we finally made it. It's been a journey to this recording. (laughs) What a week it's been. We're here. Take six something like that yes for um for a bit of background information and just for fun um we've been struggling to schedule this recording because either Steph was sick or I was (laughs) sick or we couldn't align our schedules um and we just had to reschedule about five times but we're here you're so forgiving it was so kind of you I was just like I wake up every morning and go I'm still (laughs) sick it was like I was kind of stuck in my own cabin in the woods and I just needed to get I don't know I don't know what kind of reference I'm trying to make there but I was just desperately trying to get out of this lurgy hole and it wasn't happening so thank you very much for your patience and uh, I'm this is like the nice payoff after being sick for about six days is that I finally get to do this I mean because you were you were very right and I think for this film in particular we have to be at the top of our game oh don't say that I'm like (laughs) 75 I'm 75 percent hopefully that's enough I think that'll be enough and also I'm in a very hyper mood so I think we'll balance each other out you really are you're maxed out I've been for a run I'm like eating my protein bar like oh my god I'm in my pajamas I haven't washed my hair 
Um, <laughs> I think this is a good balance of energy. I think, you know, yeah. my, my hyperness and your 75%ness is going to gel very nicely. Together. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, Steph, this was probably one of the films that I was most looking forward to discussing in the season. And I'm so excited for the next hour, hour and a bit that we're going to be talking about it. But let's go back to the beginning with your relationship with The Cabin in the Woods. Do you remember when you first watched it? And do you remember what you expected or kind of how you felt when you first encountered this film? Yeah, I I do. I have a very vivid memory of seeing this film at the cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, I first heard of this because of Joss Whedon mm-hmm. and his attachment to it as a sort of writer and producer. And um, I wouldn't say I'm like a complete Whedon head. I'm just a very big Buffy fan, essentially. Mm-hmm. So saw the name. I saw the poster. Very Evil Dead. Can you go wrong with a cabin in the woods as a horror setting? Never. You know, bit bit cabin fever, bit Friday the 13th. And I figured it would be on first impression from the poster, a slasher. And I guess my first inkling that this may not be a traditional teen horror was from seeing the trailer. And I think you get the shot of the bird flying into the force field. So Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, there's something a bit big brother about this. And then I vividly remember going to the cinema and seeing this and having so much fun. Like it's an absolute feast for a horror movie fan. There's so much to unpack. And it felt to me like a real celebration of the tropes and the characters that I love the most, as well as being a very tongue in cheek look at sort of those cliches as well that maybe are a bit, you know, they're silly, maybe they're a bit stale. Um, You know, there's decades of seeing teens hacked to pieces. So I could totally get the tongue in cheek aspect of that um, from that first viewing. But mostly my memory of it is a celebration. And I've probably seen this film probably a, a dozen times since, and I really don't get tired of it. I kind of crave seeing that lift scene in particular. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I, when I go into this, like this week when I went into watching this, I was like, oh, I was so pumped to talk about this. I haven't seen it in a few years. Maybe I watch it and actually it's not as good as I remember. And I always think that before I go in and then I come out of it and I'm like, no, this is actually really fucking good. It is so good. It's one of the genuinely funny horror comedies out there. I think Shaun of the Dead is number one for me, but this is like a top five. Yes. I mean, you kind of nailed my my memory, my experience of it as well. Mm. I actually don't remember watching it for the first time. It's almost like the Cabin in the Woods materialized fully formed yeah. in my head. <laughs> and I don't remember the first time I was I was... I watched it the first time I was surprised by it, but I've seen it also maybe like a dozen times. And similarly to you, it's just, it's never not a banger. Every Isn't time. It great. It's just, it's always funnier than the last time I saw it. I'm always yes. seeing tiny things or tiny even elements of the performances that I hadn't noticed before. I'm always seeing like small details in the way in the characters or in the backgrounds that I hadn't noticed before. And I think perhaps, I don't know, maybe it's an age thing as well, but it just becomes funnier and funnier every time I watch it. I think you're absolutely right. Seeing it in the cinema for the first time, I was, you know, I'd seen Scream. I was aware of, you know, a lot of the tropes, but as you say, kind of what was that, 2012? So we're all, we're like 10 years on mm-hmm. from that. My kind of understanding of the genre, my experience of the genre is so, so much bigger now that actually you go back to that and you have another 
another sort of more critical layer of perspective that you didn't have on those earlier viewings. And it's like, oh, actually, there's definitely things that this film is trying to say that I didn't pick up on Mm -hmm. 10 years ago at all. Um, So that's been, it's been really nice to come back to this. And also I haven't ever, I don't think I've ever done any background reading on this film really. Mm -hmm. So reading a bit more on the background of sort of Whedon and Goddard's sort of approach to the film, um, to have this conversation was really interesting. Partly it made absolute sense to me. And partly I was like, men, you need to chill out a little bit. Like you're taking things a little bit seriously, but I'm sure we can talk about that as well. But yes, I think it's, it's just the film that keeps on giving, isn't it? Absolutely. And I'm going to say it right now, and I'm sure we'll like rip apart the statement as the conversation goes on. But I think having rewatched it a few days ago, it's, it's arguably the best meta horror film. After yes. screens. Oh it's yeah. A, it's, I would, a, it's on the part for me. It is. I would completely agree. And I find I find horror comedies can be very hit and miss as well. And the humour is so on point for mm-hmm. this film. It makes me laugh every time. It never gets old. And as you say, it's always clever, but not in a I don't think it it doesn't come across as it thinks it's clever. It kind of brings the audience with it and it knows that the audience is very clever and very wise to these tropes as well, which is what I think I really enjoy about it. So let's start digging into The Cabin in the Woods. So how would you briefly summarize the film for maybe someone who's seen it but doesn't necessarily remember uh, how the plotting goes on goes along? Yes, there's like absolutely no way to summarize this film without <laughs> I know, being, I'm so sorry. being spoilerific. <laughs> no, not at all. I love a I love a a difficult summary, but. I was like, this film is like an onion, but it's also sort of like two onions that you're trying to peel at the same time. It's like the same speed. It's like an onion that has a shallot inside of it. (laughs) Yes. When you go, wow, there's another little onion in here. A perfectly (laughs) formed onion. God, you're so right. That's amazing. Anyway, so on the very... So we've got five American college students. We've got Dana, Jules, Kurt, Marty and Holden, and they decide to spend the weekend at Kurt's cousin's cabin in the forest, a classic tale. And as you would come to expect from a teen horror film, things begin to unravel as they discover a basement in the, like a cellar full of strange objects. They've got a diary full of Latin incantations, which upon reading them accidentally summon an evil upon the cabin very reminiscent in a way uh of uh, sam raimi's evil dead but in parallel to this we've got this story which unfolds at an underground laboratory where engineers are executing plans for an ancient ritual to take place and it's a ritual which places the torture and the murder of these teens at the very center of a battle to kind of save humankind so in short it's everything you'd expect and almost nothing you'd expect from a film about a bunch of extremely hot teens being hunted down by a bunch of zombie rednecks in the woods the end (laughs) beautiful and i'm especially so so impressed that you said kurt's cousin's cabin in such a cousin's cabin nonchalant way (laughs) i know with a cold (laughs) i know very impressive i think you're up to like 85 percent Oh, thank you so much. I've boosted. You can tell I do some reading for a living because I <laughs> didn't trip over that. So you you again, just to reiterate, as I will as I've mentioned in the in the introduction to this episode, but this is entirely spoilerific. So if for any reason you're listening this far along and you haven't heard, seen the cabin in the woods, everything 
is going to be spoiler territory. Every right? single it, word that it comes out of our just, mouth. This discussion would make no fucking sense Absolutely at all. Not. You'd just be like, what is this person? So yeah, definitely make sure you've watched it. So I guess my first real point of conversation is what do you make of this Russian doll type structure that the film has? It's really interesting because not only are your expectations of how a kind of teen slasher unfolds, not only are those expectations blown apart, but I think for me, like my expectations of something like a bit more meta and more satirical are kind of blown apart too. So you've got, if I knew about this dual narrative of the kind of the teens and the underground lab in advance, I would expect us to kind of meet the teens and then about halfway through the film would reveal this big twist, you know, they're actually being manipulated, they're puppets, these engineers are in this underground bunker. But actually we meet we meet the engineers first and the opening scene is one of my favourites for that reason. And I remember being in the cinema and kind of going, what the fuck, when this first opened? Like, am I in the wrong screening? Like... We're brought right into the story's orbit from the start. We are introduced to this mythology behind the film, kind of from the opening credits, really. We've got these hints at sacrifice and ritual, and we meet these engineers in the underground lab first. So it's it's all on the table from the start, and we kind of follow this parallel back and forth telling both sides of the stories. But then... The stories collide in a way that I didn't expect with kind of Dana and Marty making it inside the facility about an hour in. And I always, yeah, it's 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 kind of that moment where they make it into the facility and they meet the puppeteers is that's the moment where I'm like, yes, this film does something that previous sort of self-referential horror films don't do. It's, it's so, kind of my yeah take on it. It's so interesting because usually the meta ness is yeah. is kind of implicit in the in the dialogue. Like even in Scream, yes. you know, it's the people talking about things you know mm-hmm. that exist in their universe. But here, the meta ness is is part of the plot. So yes. there's no one acknowledging you know that they're p- part of a horror movie, mm-hmm. but they're building a whole another horror world that makes the that makes fun or elevates the tropes that we're very familiar with and plays around yes. with them. So it's it's a completely different way of approaching kind of meta-ness, if that's even a word. But the other thing that I that is always kind of surprising to me is that I always forget that we start with the engineers. Yeah. I always like so in my do mind, I, actually. It always you hits kinda, me by surprise. Yeah. You think the the scene with the where we meet kind of Dana and her friends in the dorm room and like mm-hmm. Dana literally first shot Dana is in her pants through the window like typical teen setup they're listening to kind of I don't know mid two thousand and ten music like that that in my head is what happens first and then we get the lab but it, yeah from the very start you've got these you everything's on the yeah you kind of know what's the, the you, you know the sort of first layer of the onion <laughs> but you don't pay Straight attention to it no and and it's kind of also i think a, a smart way of fitting like playing around with what we expect from a from a slasher mm-hmm. and one mm-hmm. of the things that we always expect from a slasher is like attractive teenagers or maybe i should say attractive 27 year olds playing teenagers um, <laughs> classic another and, classic and here we get like these two worker bees richard jenkin and bradley whitford by the way you know astounding actors in their own right but the in best. a very kind of west wing type situation yes that then suddenly gets plastered with this bright red you know the now it's very familiar because all the avengers movies use it and by the way just for context this is also the year that the first avengers movie came out directed by joe sweden so Uh yes that like big giant font that takes over the entire screen 
takes over the the faces of Richard Jenkins and Bradley Wilford who are like driving in a little golf mini cart <laughs> towards cart, their yeah. desk, just like bitching about their office days. It's very it's very office space in a kind of weird underground mythological bunker. But then like we almost forget about that because they're very, you know, essentially forgettable, anonymous, white yeah. dudes, worker bees. And you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, oh, whatever. I hope it doesn't come back again. But it <laughs> does. And it's like a reset, isn't it? You're mm-hmm. suddenly, yeah, you're lured into the trap of this classic kind of setup with the, the teens going away to the cabin. And you do get sucked into that for a while. And there's just a few very slight, references so you know when they leave to go to the cabin you've got the the kind of the soldier on the roof who says they've left the nest mm-hmm. then you're like every now and again there's you're kind of drip fed are like yeah okay just remember all is not what it seems but actually you're right it's very easy to also just get pulled into this story of these teens kind of hanging out and going for a weekend away because it feels so familiar to us that I just, I don't know, I just automatically get absorbed into it, I think. Same. So let's talk a little bit about these teens. Um, mm. How do they fit into the the character tropes that we expect from teen slasher movies? But also, how do they actually mm. upend them a little bit from the very beginning of the film? Yeah, so all of the classic tropes are there within sort of a teen slasher, but they're absolutely not what you'd expect. So... You know, we've spoken about our first meeting. It's the classic American dorm. Dana's in her pants. Her friend Jules has sort of just dyed her hair platinum blonde. She's trying to convince Dana to unpack her college books, you know, pack sexy clothes instead, all of this kind of thing. Um, And we kind of, these friends are positioned to meet our expectations of these character cliches, but actually they're, it's not what it seems at all. So they go to the cabin and the first half of this film is kind of packed with those settings and scenes straight out of every other teen slasher. So you've got, you know, they stop off at the gas station. It's very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They're at a cabin. It's very Evil Dead. They're away at a remote location, somewhere off the, the beaten track. You've got creepy paintings. You've got jumping in the lake and swimming. You've got investigating in the basement with all these strange objects and all of these things. But instead of sort of characters and settings and scenes being very hollow and cliche, the tropes exist because they play this much bigger part in a bigger story, this idea of ancient gods kind of being a piece. So these teens aren't actually like these roles. So Dana, who is sort of positioned as the virgin, the final girl, she isn't a virgin at all. We know from the outset that she's been sleeping with her her college tutor. So mm-hmm. she's not a virgin. Kurt is on full academic scholarship. He's a sociology major. Um, Jules is a pre-med student. Uh, Marty is <laughs> just a classic stoner with his uh, keep cup bong. Oh my God, the wild. keep cup bong. But, you know, he's he's actually very savvy and he understands more about what's going on than anything else. Mm-hmm. So all of these really classic characters, these really classic scenes um, are inverted in lots of subtle ways as we go along. So it's, yeah, we've got the classic setup with these five friends. They all fulfill the role of the virgin, the athlete, the whore, the fool, the scholar. But we kind of know from the start that they're actually not. And when I go back and rewatch this film, I kind of notice in more subtle ways that they are really like they are really likable characters and like they're really concerned when marty comes out of the car and he's really stoned and they're like 
that's not okay and we don't really want you to bring drugs like to this this weekend away like are you all right you shouldn't really be doing this and it's like that's not a classic setup at all i mean this this is what makes them so interesting right and it and it mm. again it's one of the subtleties because i think it's one of the things that i pick up on when i rewatch the film because i do kind of go into this very specific set of expectations you know you want mm-hmm. them to be kind of stupid you want them to you know yeah. the 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 um, you know, the whore to be very slutty you're like actually yeah. none of these characters are stupid none of them are black and white they're all kind of just very regular sensible young adults you know like older teenagers or whatnot but you know what we kind of put them automatically into these roles even before we're given the roles that they're supposed to be fitting into because of our our in built-in knowledge of slasher films out of teen horror films it's like of course you're blonde so you're the slut you're you know gazing into the distance so you're the final girl you're chris hemsworth so you're the jock (laughs) basically that like you're built like chris hemsworth so you're the jock doesn't matter that you're in a full academic scholarship you're a stoner so you're and look like shaggy (laughs) from scooby-doo so you must be the fool the foolish comic relief the randy of the group who'll get killed very early on but not the first one and yes. then there's holden who are like oh we're told that you're a jock yes, he's absolutely the randy isn't he yeah so picking up on that one of the things that i always notice when i go back to rewatch the film is actually how they change throughout the film and i was wondering mm. if that's something that you also notice in, in your rewatches of the film like how as the film progresses the jock becomes more jockey the yeah. or the slut becomes sluttier. Um, the final girl becomes more virginal and meeker. The fool becomes more foolish. And you know, and even Holden, I think, is the most unsubtle one. Kind of he starts off as the uh, as you know, just another rugby well, not rugby, like football player. And yeah. then he progressively becomes more like the scholar. So he like puts on glasses. Yeah, he gets glasses. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we know he's got glasses now. And he can read Latin suddenly. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's got his glasses on. He's the scholar. Yeah. No, absolutely. And kind of Kurt's one I always think about because at the beginning, like he and Jules are almost making fun of the stereotypes of the jock as well. Because, you know, Jules is like, uh, he kind of grabs Jules's books and is mm-hmm. like, you know, what did I say about these? You know, I'm not supposed to be reading these books. And she's like, <laughs> I learned it from you. Like they're totally <laughs> making fun of that stereotype. Um, and Kurt doesn't, there's the bit where he's had the interaction with Dana and then he says like, and you're in your pants. Like he doesn't, he's not. He's not looking at her in her pants. He's kind of awkward about it. He's like, I don't want to. And then by, by you know, kind of 45 minutes in, he's almost like pressuring Jules to go outside and have sex. And he's like, he's drinking loads. And Marty's the one that's like, this isn't normal for any of them. Like they don't, mm. they don't do this. They don't get really drunk. They're not overly horny. They don't go and bone outside on a little patch of moonlight on the grass. Like that's not, they know not to split up. Like all of these things are not normal for these friends. Like they know each other very well and things are subtly changing as you say. And uh, that's really interesting to see but also I find it really interesting that there's a there's a very profound reason why these tropes need to take place. Mm-hmm. So it's not just like, ha, funny, kind of funny to watch them turn into the, the cliches that we expect. But actually there's this like grand narrative around why they need to be like this and why they need to make bad decisions because it it serves a greater purpose. And on that note, actually, the other 
the other batch of characters that we're given mm. to to engage with are the are the engineers. Um, yes. And I always forget. I always think that they don't have names, but they do have names. Their names are Steve and Gary, which is Steve and Gary. <laughs> very, very much like you know, white collar workers in a massive right? organization. It's- it's really hard to remember their names because mm-hmm. they're so generic. It's like, yeah. what is Richard? J- I don't- Gary, of course. It's going to be like a Gary or a Nigel or a, yeah, Gary and Steve. A classic, yes, the facility technicians. So alongside our group of teenagers who we're engaging with, but at the same time, we've got Gary and Steve, who we spend quite a lot of time with as the movie progresses. What do you make yes. of, of them and their banter, I guess? They're the best bit for me. They <laughs> yes. actually are. And just the more I see them, the more I love them um, in all of their, yeah, with all of their great flaws when they're talking about Steve's poor wife at the beginning and he's kind of moaning about her in a, you know, but is they're, they're cogs in a corporate machine, aren't mm-hmm. they? They're, they're these regular, as you say, like they're these regular guys. They're trying to make it through the day at their desks um, and they're they're bantering in a way that you know there's a lot of office banter and the so much of that is familiar in a, again a very stereotypical way that it's funny but there there's the kind of darker side to it as well in that they're also they're kind of pretty immune to the to the job that they're doing so they're doing a very everyday role for them but also it, it's a role that very much inflicts pain and suffering on someone else. And they're just completely immune to it at this stage. They, it, it's something that it's a job that they've got to get done for, a, for you know, what they've been told is a greater good. So they're, it, it's a really interesting dynamic, I think. I mean, I one of the things that I love kind of rewatching it is I think mm. that it's very akin to horror fandom in a way yes. in in that way of kind of the things that seem the most extreme or horrific or pushing mm-hmm. boundaries moral societal bodily whatever yeah then become kind of part of this very fun um board game almost and I, i'm not saying yeah. that the facility or whatever approaches as a board game but i'm looking at an actual screenshot of the board that they have the office uh (laughs) betting betting system that they have as to which monster will win and i'm like it's it's a way of sort of you know these things that are so horrific these stories and these monsters that are so horrifying to so many people they become so quotidian and so mundane and so very much like oh witches or sexy witches hell lords or you know giant snakes the mummy or uh the merman (laughs) (laughs) always the merman i'm with steve never no you're right it's like it's yeah the murder there is literal torture and murder and sex and these crazy insane monsters and this is all just like a walk in the park for them like they're more interested in placing bets and Mm -hmm. talking at the vending machine about like what they're doing at the weekend like this is you're right it's so it's so every day isn't it like for us that i could talk about this kind of thing all the time and everyone else would probably think i'm insane but everyone else who's really into horror films is going to be like yeah i can i i find actually i find watching a lot of this stuff to be quite a comfort sometimes so yeah <laughs> really really strange um so what do you what do you make of the with the teenagers going back to the teenagers mm. it'll be going back and forth between Stephen gary and the teenagers so yes when the teenagers are in their slasher movie mm-hmm does the sla- and they follow essentially all the beats of a slasher movie as are laid out for them 
in a kind of choose your own adventure vibe because they get to pick up (laughs) objects and based on what object they interact with they will get one type of slasher movie and they will get another type of slasher movie um i love this movie but one of the things that i find interesting as i rewatch it i'm almost i remember thinking more of it as a slasher movie you know it falls Mm -hmm. into these things you know they're in the cabin in the woods they're in the dark you know they're getting drunk they're touching some weird diary they read something out in latin all bad ideas we Mm -hmm. know these are bad ideas there's monsters people get killed you know they're getting murdered um obviously jules dies first because she's the whore and and kind of they they react to that but every time I rewatch it, and, and on this recent rewatch, I'm like, those are the bits that work the least for me because I'm watching them with like a triple distance. Not yes. only do I know the tropes of the Sasha films and the mm-hmm. films that they're trying to imitate, but also I'm now so much more invested in the commentary by Stephen Gary, where I'm like, yeah, but I want to, yes. I cannot wait for the cutaway to Stephen Gary making fun of the teenagers making the dumb slasher movie mistake as opposed to actually caring that much about whether they get killed or not and i was wondering if if the the horror film that the teenagers are in actually works for Mm. you within cabin in the woods it i know exactly what you mean it kind of harks back to this Mm. idea of sort of uh, the film being like a love hate letter to the to the genre which is just something joss whedon said like this idea of kind of um we're, we're kind of celebrating and, you know, we love being scared. We love rooting for characters and wanting to them to sort of face this, you know, all of these jump scares and creepy monsters, but actually kind of unpacking them in the way that it, it does really taps into the fact that there are lots of cliches and, uh, and storylines and kind of character tropes that are maybe feeling a bit stale and a bit old. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the idea of sort of kids acting like idiots and, and the violence, it's like a film that very much pokes fun at those cliches, especially the teens making the bad decisions. And it gives this kind of, I guess the grander mythos and the reason behind to sort of, uh, I don't know, it, it, it gives it a, a background that we don't usually have to these kinds of films. It's sort of, and yeah, I think, I think for me, you're right. The, the, the lab setup is, uh, much more refreshing and it is where the kind of the the i don't know it, that's the refreshing part for me and the the cabin stuff is is kind of funny and um it is enjoyable but as you say i'm i'm very aware of it kind of unpacking the ways that the genre maybe has been using relying on the these kind of cliches and things mm. for too long does that make sense yeah and i think even as you're as you were talking i was thinking back on the film i was like actually the only moment when the actual horror story that's within the mm. the the facilities plans starts really working for me is when marty and dana discover the facility that's yes. when it becomes unexpected. And I, yes. and you know, I said I don't remember watching the film for the first time, but I do remember the feeling of that mm-hmm. shift happening and being like, what the fuck is going to happen? This is unknown yes. territory. I have never seen this before and I have no idea how it's going to end. And that yeah. is exciting. Yeah, and and poking fun at those cliches within the cabin is is fun, but again, that is something that we've done before as well. So like with a film like Scream, like we we we're an audience that knows that these you know these these ideas these tropes these kind of beat by beat cookie cutter things are kind of 
funny but silly and you know we we know we have like a lot of knowledge about them I guess so you're right when we reach the facility that's the bit where everything changes and it's also the facility for me that is um the the moments of real tension and kind of horror in this film are actually in the facility mm-hmm. for me rather than the, in the cabin so when uh when the red phone rings for example when they're all celebrating because mm-hmm. they think they've pretty much got to the end and that red phone rings but that that is a real moment of tension it's really it's very dark when the tunnel doesn't blow and they're kind of freaking out Stephen Gary are like you know like we fucked it we're in big trouble like that is very tense for me (laughs) and it's it's a lot more effective and affecting than the scenes with the teens I think so Mm. that that was something I hadn't quite noticed on earlier viewings is the 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 points that are really sort of edge of the seat for me in this and that are actually very dark are those moments within the very sterile kind of corporate setup. Mm. Um, I think about that, that horrible, horrible moment where they're celebrating whilst Dana's in the background, kind of battling for her life on the screen with the zombie redneck guy. Like she's, she's literally been demoted to the background because it's kind of not that interesting for us. Um, And everyone's celebrating in the front. And I mean, that's like fucking dark. (laughs) Like those are the moments that really stick with me on sort of repeat viewing. You're so right about that shot. I I, kind of made a note of that shot because I was like, oh, wow. Oh, this is me when I'm like cooking and watching a horror film. (laughs) (laughs) On my laptop, like on the fridge. That's literally (laughs) me. Yes. Putting, I I prop it up on my celebrations box and I I do my cooking (laughs) and people are literally being hacked apart in the background. And I'm like, la, 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 la. It yeah. is, uh, you know, uh, I felt, you know, to use the parlance of the of the internet, I'm like, I felt very personally attacked by that scene. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to say. It's it's a weird dynamic actually because mm-hmm. I think um, the setup for this film, on one level, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as well. You know, there's there's this idea that the audience is is the ancient you know we're the ancient gods um mm. and we're we're having to ask you know we're we want to be appeased with all of these kind of you know we're watching this for entertainment and the sex and the violence but also there are times where i see myself very much in gary and steve as well and then there are also times where i see myself in marty especially when he's walking around going like what the fuck are you all doing like why are we doing this this is so <laughs> stupid it's like yes that's me as well and i kind of i kind of see myself in in every layer does that make sense absolutely and i think that's also kind of the 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 point and the joy mm. of this film and yeah. the the rewatchable element of it it's not so much the easter eggs and the references which we will kind of talk yeah. a little bit in 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 a moment but it's the fact that all the layers of it work for you know for horror fans as a horror film as a meta horror film as a comedy and you can sort of attach yourself and see yourself in in so many different behaviors from characters and from the whole film mm. without necessarily just it always being the same one so you yes. can like jump yeah. ship within the duration of this film and I love you kind of saying that the the you know we the audience are kind of like the ancient ones we're the ones that need to be appeased by the facility but let's talk a little bit about the facility itself like what is this what is this world this um the office politics of this underground like Truman Show-esque lab and this idea <laughs> of the the human sacrifices that they need to make every year to the to the ancient ones 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very Buffy setup, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I remember an initial viewing being like, wow, they've they, Dana and Marty have tapped into the initiative. Like, this is where <laughs> they are. We're going to see Riley Finn and it's all going to, yeah. Um, no, Riley, please. Absolutely no, not. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Poor Riley. Absolutely. That's well, a whole other episode, but good Riley Lord. needs to be less boring. So no poor Riley from me. Is the worst boyfriend of all, truly. <laughs> so sorry. But, um, but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, is this a film about teens being stalked and murdered in the woods? Or is it a film about a bunch of white collar engineers serving a bunch of powerful overlords having to do a job which causes great harm to other people and that's that's kind of what i'm edging towards nowadays i'm like no this is this is actually a film about stephen gary and um it yeah it's it's really interesting and something that i also there's this 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 grand idea, like the metaphor of, um, as we were discussing, you've got the the puppets, so you've got the teens, the kind of the actors on the film set almost. You've got um, Gary and Steve, who are almost like Weeded and Goddard themselves, maneuvering the puppets to keep the, the viewers happy. And then you've got these ancient gods who are us, the the horror viewers who just want to be entertained. And there's this, this grand metaphor there about this, which is like really... That is interesting but also i'm a bit i'm sort of a bit obsessed with the capitalist undertones of this film as well like the idea yeah i'm uh, the idea of these engineers just doing a job and their job happens to be murdering innocent people (laughs) and i know that goddard i know that goddard kind of grew up um in the like the home of the atomic bomb essentially and he said he was talking talking about sort of watching these kind suburban men go to work making these weapons of mass destruction and that i don't know i spent a lot of time for some reason on this viewing probably Mm -hmm. because of the state of the world today as well thinking about how these engineers are actually quite desensitized to the evil that they see on the screen and they've you know they're they're part of a system and they're doing this for the greater for good. So I ended up <laughs> spending a lot of time thinking about people having to work for a system or of an institution that is telling you that you're doing something for the greater good, which is probably not the point of this film, but actually that was something that I don't know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this week. That's really interesting. And I hadn't even thought about it in that way, but you're absolutely on point. Like it is yeah. it is that element of, you know, the banality of evil. Like it's not mm. it's not always, you know, mustache twirling dr evil type people who do evil things it's very often because it's not always just one person or even a group of people it's systems and institutions and this is one and they're they talk so much about you know the greater good the fact that these sacrifices are uh, these human sacrifices and these things that they do are essentially there to save the entire planet so in a way the film is also kind of telling us to look at Gary and Steve as the real heroes of the cabin in the woods because they're Mm -hmm. the ones who are trying to save the entire planet with their work. Whereas Marty and Dana, when they survive and ultimately, you know, ultimately also survive and basically choose to condemn the entire planet to die because they don't want to (laughs) die. Like, they're, they're actually the the they're the villains because they end the entire planet. Yeah. But we're still also rooting for them. I real yeah, you're rooting for them both, aren't you? And this is one of the things I came across in like a, 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 you know, looking on Reddit was like just an argument about like who's the villain here? It's mm-hmm. clearly Dana and Marty, but like 
is is it because Gary and Steve are trying to save the world? Yes, but actually, you know, should is the great is murdering people for the greater good? I I don't know. Is that is that always the right thing to do? Um, are they being caught up in a system and? You know, it's not their fault, but are they the heroes if they're sort of maintaining the status quo in this way because they've been told that something worse will happen if they don't do this? On the flip side, you're absolutely right. Dana and Marty are being very selfish because they're they're picking themselves over the rest of humanity. But also, if you tell me that I have to pick society over my friends, I am I'm also likely to tell you to go fuck yourself. So I don't know. They're kind of a bit. They're both the heroes and the villains. Yeah, and also then also as an audience. Isn't it so much more satisfying to get that absolute fuck you ending where a giant yes. hand pops up from the floor and just eat like grabs the cabin in the woods? It's oh so my God, much so much. And it's also extremely satisfying to see our teenage heroes kind of go fuck the system and yeah. we're going to we're going to go up in flames and we're going to burn. It's like a very fight club ending in a way where everything is yeah. is breaking down and being ex- and imploding, but you're kind of like, well, you know, I don't disagree. Yeah, <laughs> and, no, and I somewhat I like one. So, and at the same time, like if they didn't win and the facility won and Dana did shoot Marty and the gods were a piece, it would also be a satisfying ending. So, actually, like there is no, there is no way to end this in an unsatisfactory way, which is kind of amazing for a story, isn't it? It is. It is. You're right, but. For me, I love I love this ending, and mm-hmm. I love the fact that it, it it happens the way it does because again, it's that it's toying with our expectations when it comes to sacrifice, especially in filmmaking. We are expected that you know the final girl, the people left at the end, they will make their sacrifice for the good of mankind, and um, that's what we're taught. You know, that's what sacrifice is. Um, and they've kind of Marty says at the beginning like society needs to crumble fuck it like and I, I really respect that and also you know talking about sort of the 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 tropes of um, like teen slasher horror and you know this film being something that's very nudge nudge kind of wink wink um, it, you know the idea of society needing to crumble is you know the 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 the, the status quo of horror filmmaking maybe that needs to crumble and you know all of these 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 tropes and these cliches that we have like they're pretty fun we enjoy them but actually now is the time to start something new you know maybe we need to let all of this crumble and fall to the floor let's give someone else a chance let's do something different in our horror filmmaking so that's the the other element of course it's very in a way Lovecraftian, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's very much and like I, there's these un- unknowable ancient beings that we need to that we can mm-hmm. never control, but we can only sort of tame mildly. Mm-hmm. And yes, but you know, it's it's kind of making you think about oh well, will this planet is this planet now like one part of this giant cosmic ecosystem and it doesn't really matter all that much and like marty says maybe someone else can have a turn now at this planet because we're mm. kind of we kind of we kind of ruined it so maybe we should just leave yeah we shouldn't like is this is this a good thing that we're doing now we're stuck in this weird yeah we're, we're 
enabling all these horrible things to take place like and and this is just one ritual isn't it there Mm -hmm. are this is just the american ritual there are so many other rituals happening across the world so actually we are we are punishing and murdering quite a lot of people (laughs) like maybe maybe that does need to crumble maybe we need to give someone else a chance because we're not yeah we think we're heroes but maybe we're not doing a nice thing and you know we've t- we've kind of delved into the capitalist and and existential elements of mm. the cabin in the woods, but I want to kind of talk about the fun kills. Yes. So we, we we talked about the ending of the whole. <laughs> Sorry, I got too serious. No, I love it. I mean, we can we yeah. you know we can do both here. We can get existential yeah. and we can get goofy. Um, so. <laughs> What you know, we were talking about the ending, and I want to kind of talk about the way that some of these characters end because I think within the overall structure of the film, each individual character also has their perfect finale, and I I wanted to touch on them and kind of what did you, which one of the ends of each character, which one of the the deaths um did you enjoy the most? Oh, but they are they are all brilliant. <laughs> they are very good, aren't they? There's yeah. uh I mean, for me, Kurt's death will always stay with me and it's something that I <laughs> almost forget until kind of like 15 seconds beforehand yeah. I go, oh, fucking hell, because he's you know, he he was a very intelligent, quite sensitive, seemed quite like a lovely guy. Mm-hmm. And now he's this big muscular football jock that just wants to have sex outdoors and get really drunk and just be a bit of a jerk. Um, and he reaches this point where he's like, I'm going to save the whole film because whole film, the whole thing, because I'm, you know, I'm the athlete. I'm, I'm the muscle. I'm the big hero. I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going to go and get some big fucking guns and I'm going to come back and save everyone. And then he just smacks into this force field. Like, I don't know. It's like a full splat, isn't it? In a way that I forget. I forget just how sudden and how cruel it is when it happens. Like it's a real shocker. <laughs> it's just I mean, and I have I think my that scene is just beautiful. It's just comedic perfection. It's it shock it's shocking and it does like it's one of the first uh, well, it's not one of the first, but it's one of the major, I think, twists in a film that is full of twists. Yes. Where you're like, Oh shit, these these worlds are about to collide. They're actively colliding. Yeah. These characters should not have seen that happen, basically. No, exactly. You're right. It's all, again, our expectation of we know things aren't quite right and mm. you expect him not to make it, I think. You're like, mm-hmm. ah, he's going to probably just, mi- like, you know, he's not going to make the jump, basically. He'll fall down a, like something like that will happen. They will manipulate the environment in some way to stop him from being able to leave. Mm. But then he hits that force field and Marty and Dana now know, no, not Marty and Dana, Marty and, no, Dana and Holden yeah. <laughs> know like they are literally shown that something far more nefarious is going on and it's they are told up front that something very strange is happening and that they are being forced to stay there you're right it's very again it's like very upfront um those worlds collide in a way that you just absolutely do not expect because you think they will be kept in the dark about what is happening for a lot longer absolutely and then one of the things that i I really appreciate about all the deaths is that every single character uh, that we that were that is named essentially that we're introduced to, even if they're sort of tertiary characters, they all get a significant ending. I mean, 
I've I've sort of alluded to it before. My very favorite one is Steve's uh, death, Bradley Whitford, <laughs> who dies by Merman. By Merman, <laughs> that's the best one. One as well, where the Merman just appears out of this foggy, um, you know, bloodshed that's happening in the facility, and Bradley Whitford is just like, oh come on. <laughs> it's so beautifully poetic, isn't it? Love I love it. the Merman. When you'd messaged me about this, and we were organizing like a time to talk about this film i was like i'm so excited to talk about the merman because yeah we're all deeply invested in that extremely strange monster and um apparently the merman was like at the top of test audiences reasons for liking the film which (laughs) i really enjoy because it it too is the top reason that i enjoy this film but you're right there's very that's kind of peppered throughout isn't it that steve's like i just really want to see this merman and then it's flirted with because kurt's got the conch and he's like am i gonna blow in it and then you're just really you're rooting for this merman scenario i don't know how that scenario would work in any i i just i feel like people would like how would the merman uh, it just wouldn't work but uh, yeah so so uh, pleased and horrified for steve that that's the way he goes and it's that moment with the blowhole that just (laughs) (laughs) it's disgusting it's just i don't know it just brings great joy and great disgust at the same time as someone with a very documented uh, I'm not gonna say fetish, it's not, like cinematic fetish. Like I just, I just okay. want to see more mer creatures on screen. That's okay. what I'm saying. I want more live action mermaid shit. I want more live action merman shit. Like that. I'm. It makes me so happy. I am Bradley Whitford. I am the person who's constantly, completely unprovoked, bemoaning the lack of live action mermaid <laughs> movies. We need more mermaid, don't we? Like, Absolutely. Where, am I, ever, I thought you were going to say you had a documented. I thought you were going to say you had a documented fetish for blowholes. I was like, I didn't know about this. That is this not is news to me. That is not for this podcast, and that is not I'm a sentence. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> that is not a sentence I expected to hear today. Cut that one out. That's <laughs> oh, that's staying in. That's one hundred percent staying in. But so it's it's just I'm. I'm I so connect with Bradley Whitford's character in this film because I I just love how that joke is peppered through the entire film and then it pays off. Every it single is a joke beautiful pays off. Yeah. You're so right. You're so right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> that's the best death. I'd almost I can't believe I I started wanging on about Kurt when we had that death to talk about, but um and no, the, you are right. <laughs> one of the and let's talk a little bit about the monsters because they're mm. options. Right, we we get a we get a lot of we get a bit of the merman, we get a lot of the zombie redneck torture family, um, we get a little bit of the oh my god, who else do we get? We get a little bit more mutant zombies, I guess. But yeah, yeah, we get quite a lot of we get quite a lot of um. Well, there's quite a lot of screen time for werewolf and bat mm-hmm. as well. They get a bit of you right um time, yeah. Uh, there are so many options though, aren't there? And as you yeah. say, there's like a, it is a choose your own adventure when they're in the basement. They could, they could pick anything. And I'm, I'm sort of mad that, that Dana decided to read from the diary of all things. It's like, come on now. That's, that's definitely one of the, the least interesting of the, um, I actually, 
for the record, I actually really like the 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 redneck. To- Wait, what what is it? The redneck torture no. zombie redneck torture family. <laughs> That's it. Zombie redneck torture family. It's a very specific way of saying it. <laughs> the Buckners. Um, I actually do have time for them, and I do think they're quite creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like this nice love child of sort of Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, aren't they? But mm-hmm. yeah, all of the potentials is just the mind just reels. All of these other potentials we could have had is just that's part of the fun of it i think is actually imagining the spin-offs that we could have had absolutely and we get this um i mean one of the most famous shots of cabin in the woods is kind of dana and marty going down in this elevator and, and they're just surrounded by these glass boxes full of monsters and each monster in a way is also kind of a reference or an allusion to either very famous horror films you know like the dead eyes are basically the cenobites mm. from hellraiser you know you get um these kind of like um like zombies you get mutants you get werewolves you get witches you get like a hell lord who's basically pinhead you get like these vampires like there's one that there's one that looks a lot like samara from ringu yes there's like a there's a mixture of like very generic monster type like kind of yeah vampire goblin werewolf but then very specific references so on the whiteboard they've got angry molesting tree which is you know a specific (laughs) evil dead reference there is only one angry molesting tree that i'm aware of Mm -hmm. um and uh i'm trying to think of other well kind of like the masks that are very um strangers-esque and then you've got the twins in the cube that are like the shining so Mm. there's very specific references and then also very generic references which is kind of fun but i mean yeah the lift scene is just like a very cathartic payoff isn't it it's so much ah it's just so much fun and and kind of on this referential element of the film like that's one of the joys of it isn't it and it's been kind of described as a puzzle uh as a puzzle game for horror fans Mm. kind of Mm. do you do you do you find it kind of in enjoyable to do you find this element of the film enjoyable the fact that there's so many references and that People have taken so much joy in both trying to find them, pinpoint them, <laughs> spot the reference, spot all the Easter yeah. eggs, but also at the same time, it's kind of making fun of the of us for enjoying doing it that. It is. Yeah, I think there's a twofold thing here. So I think horror fans, including the makers of films like this, mm-hmm. I think we fully acknowledge the greats that came before us and we like to honour our own ancient gods in a way. So like the Halloweens, the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, the things that made the genre what it is today we love to pay tribute to them so we kind of love an easter egg in that respect like this is the biggest bowl of eggs i think the genre you know like films have ever seen there is pretty much everything in it and so i think there's part of this which is acknowledging the greats and that's why we really love to see them pop up all the time and i'm amazed at the level of detail about this film that you can find on the internet like there are (laughs) very very detailed breakdowns of every single monster when they appear their mythology what they might allude to on the it's crazy like there's a whole it's basically like a whole wikipedia of various articles breaking down every single monster some of which i don't i i have never caught on screen like i'm not i don't think i could even screenshot and find them it's absolutely insane we're very very clever people and we're very very knowledgeable so i think we yeah we we love to honor the things that came before us and the classics um we also 
you know, we know a lot, so we love to we love to kind of put our knowledge to the test. But also, we I think we don't take everything too seriously. So you know, with the cliches and the the, the monsters, the cookie cutter monsters in particular, like we know the cliches, we know they're silly, and I think we know how to make fun of things in a very tongue in cheek way in a way that's very loving at the same time. So we can acknowledge that scenes like this are completely ridiculous, completely silly, but that's part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we're such a great community as well. We like we know our shit. We also know how to have a laugh. And that's why I regard this film as a celebration more than a serious critique, because it's it's just it's something to discuss with your friends, isn't it? It's something to have a laugh about. And to be like, I love these bits. This stuff is completely ridiculous, but I always have time for it. It's that kind of, yeah. It's just so much fun. It's it's interesting because, and, and I think I sent you uh, a part of this, but I really loved Roger Ebert's review of this film because he mm. has this whole, you know, setting off point of like, is this is this a horror film or is this like mm-hmm. a puzzle piece? And he calls it this final exam for fanboys in his review, but he yeah. also, which is a great line and it's very true. But he mm. also asks, like, you know, in hearing you speak, Ebert in his review is asking, like, is this film itself an act of criticism and i think Mm. you know we always think about film criticism as you know this like dire dense you know hyper intellectual (laughs) act of thinking and you know it is and it can be but it does not necessarily mean that it cannot be fun you know if we're if we're gonna compare the cabin in the woods and think of it as like a piece of criticism i think that also tracks because not just because of the conversations that it contains, but also mm-hmm. the conversations that it then spawns. Like, you know, you mentioning all these breakdowns on articles. And I was watching a few video essays by creators that I like about oh, wow. this film. And I'm mm. like, oh, you've got like a very different reading from it than I do. Mm-hmm. And and in some place in some places we align, in some places we don't. And the fact that it can talk about horror. And it can, you know, create a story that works, but also a story that lives on like at least three different levels within the same film, but also incorporate references that are known, but also not the point. So when I think of like very meta things like Ready Player One, which is a obscene Mm -hmm. (laughs) obscene uh like book and (laughs) the adaptation is just shit. But yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's i think it's try, it that's a bad example of mm-hmm. the sort of act that i think the captain in the book succeeds in making of itself like it is criticism yeah. in a sense where like it is so knowing about a genre but mm-hmm. it is so knowing about how the genre uses storytelling that it can actually tell a conv- a, a compelling story without yes. ignoring yeah. And and actually posing quite a few questions and making statements as well about the genre as a whole, which is quite difficult to achieve. Like you have to be very, very knowledgeable, Mm -hmm. but also come from a place of understanding as opposed to mockery. Like it's a comedy, but it's not a spoof at all um i yes. don't think it's spoofing the horror genre i think those references that we talk about you know the like the cenobites the the molesting tree all those things mm. it's just winks i don't think they necessarily add to the story but they're no. a way of like dropping in influences 
Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, when you talk to a filmmaker and you kind of talk about what they were watching when they were drawing inspiration on whether they were working on a film. And very yeah. often, well, very not always, but very often, you know, they'll have like these lists. And sometimes those lists are very unexpected because they'll be drawing from some references for, you know, the visual language of the film. They'll be drawing on other references for performances. They'll be drawing on a completely different set of references for like the, the tone or the or the story mm. and the script of it. And this is how I think about this film as well. It's like I can see the different batches of things that are have influenced the cabin in the woods and what's really mm. i think what's really makes it an act of criticism is that it puts them in the text but it's yes. sort of they're like footnotes yes yeah you're completely right and i'd i'd be interested to know um to have someone who's like not particularly knowledgeable about horror or who you know doesn't watch a lot of horror films what they get out of this film as mm-hmm. well because i think you could still really enjoy it and i don't yeah. think it feel i don't think it needs to feel like i don't think it needs to feel like a test in that the the as you say like the makers of this film aren't saying like we're so very clever and how much of this can you understand or mm-hmm. how much of this you can guess like it doesn't i feel like it brings the audience along with it and it knows that we're all very knowledgeable and that we love this kind of thing and you know it it, it doesn't patronize us in that way but i'd be yeah i'd be really interested to know if people who aren't as into horror would watch this and get a lot out of it um, and I think they still would. I think there's still like a real enjoyment factor and that you could have like a, a quite subtle knowledge of um, the, the genre and still sort of understand what it's trying to do to an extent. And I don't think you have to, I think if you can understand all of the, you know, if you pull apart all of the different elements, that's really, really satisfying. But you also don't have to if you don't, if that's not your thing. I think that's the biggest challenge of a film like this, isn't it? Mm. I mean, the same, you know, when I when I said at the beginning of our chat that I think this is as good as a of a meta horror as Scream yeah. is. This is why this is one of the reasons why. Because I think that same as Scream, it works without the meta film, without the meta yeah. thing. And yeah. it works in a different way with the meta thing. Yeah. And and I think that's the kind of the challenge. It's the same as say, you know, this is the same test that I kind of applied to any Marvel movie, right? A Marvel mm. movie really succeeds, in my opinion, when it works for three types of audiences. Yeah. When it works for someone who's coming into that movie as an individual standalone piece of work, they don't, they're not, you know, necessarily engaged with the previous decade plus of content that Marvel has mm-hmm. put out, which all forms part of the same cinematic universe. B, it works for people who are a part of that conversation and have, you know, want an, a, another episode in the MCU. And C, it works for people who not only, like, are engaged with the cinematic universe, but also engaged with the extent that kind of, you know, the, the comic book universe of it. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to satisfy three audiences with three very different types of demands. Yeah. And now, digging my heels into this idea of Cabin in the Woods as an act of horror film criticism as well, mm. as a piece of entertainment too, I think it works on that level too. Like, as a as a film critic, if you watch it and if you're familiar with horror, you can, you can appreciate it kind of on that level. And similarly, yeah. if you're an audience member and you're reading a, a piece of criticism from a film critic, you kind of need to be able to read it before you watch the film to help you make a decision mm. whether you want to watch it or not, whether you want to mm. spend your time with it, be 
maybe read it after you've watched the film and gain some new insight or some new context yeah. from it that you did yeah, not have yeah. when you were going into the film and see mm. also enjoy it as a piece of writing as a piece of non-fiction you know writing craft which you yeah. know demands that the film critic actually knows how to string a sentence or two together so mm. i have now completely <laughs> I'm digging my heels into this idea of that roger ebert kind of asked himself in his review of like is the cabinet yeah. what's a piece of film criticism and i'd say it is yeah i think that's no i completely agree with you i think you're right it is it is um i just it, i like the fact that you can you can sort of engage with it on different levels mm -hmm. and there are like there are things that i got out of it watching this week that i might not forget about but that they might not sit at the forefront for me mm -hmm. um with the subsequent viewing and i don't think that matters like i've kind of got something out of it every time and what were some of the things that you got out of it kind of this time around well there was definitely I, again thinking about this probably because of the context and the state of the world today mm -hmm. i found um those those underground lab elements and thinking about sort of the position that steve and gary have been put in um by you know the director by um everyone above them um I've, i felt a lot sadder for them in a way that i don't think i've paid as much attention to in the past um and also yeah i guess in the past, I've spent a lot of time wanting to get to the lift scene because it's a lot of fun and a mm -hmm. real celebration. And and this time, yeah, maybe that that wasn't sitting at the forefront as the most important, not most important part of the film to me. But uh, I think I spent a bit more time kind of savoring some of the yeah, some of the acts of the acts of criticism and some of the um, more subtle elements of the film rather than the very loud lift scene that goes on for about 10 minutes and it's just a bloodbath i mean we've gone very highbrow but let's talk about the bloodbath <laughs> because those final like 10 minutes after after marty and dana kind of come out of the lift holy fucking shit it doesn't let it just doesn't let up does no. it it's pretty intense it's so it's kind of amazing because I don't know did you feel this way as well where I kind of felt very desensitized and didn't really care that much when our main team characters were being killed off because it fits oh, yeah. so much in the expected gore we're when, so used to that we're so used to that <laughs> when the lift scene happened I was like oh my god I don't even know which which way to look because everyone's getting murdered in a different way in every single corner of the screen Yes, so many creative options there, isn't there? Yeah, no, you're completely right. Like the the teens are actually very. Um, I think they're actually very likable, um, and I'm, I, I'm sort of rooting for them. But also, when they die, I'm not surprised. And it it it's it's kind of yeah. It's and some of them I, I will admit are quite forgettable. So like Holden in particular mm -hmm. is not a very interesting person. And I think sometimes we have this in teen slashes, like we'll have a group of people and, you know, th those those sort of main characters, those those heroes really, some of them really aren't that interesting. So he dies, I'm, I don't really give a shit. And then, yeah, the lift scene in particular is complete mayhem and so fun to watch and is where the sort of creativity truly takes flight. And then everything from there on is just completely insane. <laughs> And it's funny you mentioned that kind of we don't really give a shit about the teen characters. Uh, 
I don't know about you, the one the one character I did shit about throughout the entire film, and especially after he reappears, is Marty. Is Marty? Well, this is the question I will ask you, Anna. Who is the final girl? Is it Dana or is it Marty? Well, technically it's Dana, isn't it? I mean, this is also very much following the Scream format, right? Like, there's not just one yes. person who survives. Dana is the designated yes. final girl, but Randy also survives in Scream. And Marty exactly. is the Randy. He's the know-it-all. He's not the fool. He's exactly. The and I was rooting for Marty more than Dana. Sorry, Same. Dana. Same. Um, and he's also very knowledgeable. And yeah, I'm rooting for him more. He arguably, he might be a virgin. We're not entirely <laughs> sure. I was thinking about this. I was like, we don't know if Marty's done it. We know he's dated Jules before, but they just made out a little bit. Maybe Marty's the final girl. Um, yeah, who knows? But he is the one that you're rooting for, though, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because, again, he's kind of partially us as the audience. Um, and he's uh, he's also hilarious. He's, he's the one kind of character within the team group that is legitimately hilarious. Like, he's got so many good one-liners. Honestly. He's so good. Um, the moment when he finds the cables <laughs> in the cabin and he's just <laughs> looking like, around fuck? like puppets. Where are the puppets? puppets. <laughs> the puppets. He says something about being in a womb of reefer that makes me laugh every time. He's like, I live in a womb of reefer or something like that. It just makes me laugh every time. He's very, very likable. Um, the stoner nerd. Mm. He knows, as you say, he is our Randy. He's the conspiracy nut. He's aware of these tropes. He's tropes. He's questioning everything that's going on um he's the one that kind of breaks the lamp and finds the bugs so he breaks that kind of wall the divide between the two worlds um and he's also essentially saved by his own dope because whatever he's smoking has basically been stopping all of the outside sort of environmental elements from impacting on him so he's just yeah he's he's great after gary and steve marty is my yeah I mean, you know, if anything, he makes us a pro-weed movie, basically, because his weed is the, is the thing that saves him from being completely manipulated. It's saving everyone, right? It's actually saved him from being the dummy in many respects. So this is a pro-weed movie. <laughs> so as we're, as we're nearing towards the end of our chat, I wanted to kind of break down the ending because there's like several endings within the ending. And... Yes. We kind of have to talk about the director of the facility because that was another, you know, what the fuck moment when the doors <laughs> open up and in the sacrificial tomb, Sigourney <laughs> Weaver appears in a power suit straight off the set of political animals. Hot. Just <laughs> extremely hot. The power, the icon. It's, it's a beautiful moment, isn't it? And I don't think I clocked on first watching i don't think i clocked it was like because we have the voiceover first don't mm-hmm. we we ha- have her voiceover she's talking about the need for this to kind of happen and um you know let's just get it over with and all of these kinds of things i don't think i clocked it was her until i saw her personally same but um yeah but also uh, her role is the director mm-hmm. wink wink nudge nudge <laughs> is she the the director of the film is she the higher power coming down you know she's the she's the sort of uh the puppeteer but uh, who works for the ancient gods isn't she so she's mm-hmm. the yeah on a very um on on the nose level the fact that she's the director <laughs> i kind of love is, uh, i love yeah. i know that some people have criticized that scene for basically being an exposition dump mm-hmm. and and it it is 
It is that. It yeah. is an exposition yeah. dump. Well, yeah. It kind of still works for me. I think because Sigourney Weaver, number one, and two, because... It's so good, yeah. It doesn't go the way that anybody yeah. expects it to go. Do you know what? I hadn't even, personally, I hadn't even thought of it as an expedition dump. Like, I don't think that had quite a... I hadn't sat there during viewing and gone like, oh yeah, this is the bit where... That, that actually hadn't occurred to me, mm. really. So if it doesn't ring as an expedition dump to me, then maybe that it, it isn't, as you say. And the fact that um, it it doesn't go to plan and we think that we have Dana turning on Marty mm-hmm. briefly, don't we? It looks like she's going to do the quote-unquote right thing. She's going to sacrifice Marty and, you know, to to save the rest of humankind. And she's going to sort of play into this big maintain the status quo and play into this big structure and do what needs to be done and she doesn't she mm. the end they decide fuck it for whatever for whatever reason they're not going to accept their fate as a sacrifice um and they're gonna sort of yeah they're gonna see where things go but uh i, I think is a brilliant ending i really like it i don't know have you ever got the sense that people don't like the ending or they wanted it to be something different well, I don't know, because actually, I don't think I've, like, spoken to many humans about this film, like, outside <laughs> of our, you know... Oh, an honor. <laughs> outside of this, this is the longest that I've spoken mm. kind of to someone else about it. Like, I've read a lot about it, and I've spoken kind of briefly. But you know how you talk to your friends who are horror fans or film fans? You're like, yes, I love this film. Yes, and this bit and this yeah. bit and that bit. Um, That's why I love podcasting. It's because you can get real deep and existential about films. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not because I don't have friends. I do. I promise. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> Um, but I just like I don't know and frankly I do not care for people who do not enjoy the sending people allowed to have their opinions <laughs> and we can fight about but them they but they are wrong yeah they are incorrect yes this is a fact but mm-hmm. and I think I put this in my notes to you as well like I think there's something really wild about this ending about the mm-hmm. the appearance of the director the death of the director Marty mm-hmm. and Dana kind of basically lighting up a joint and be like yeah well we're all gonna die Fuck it. Fuck it. And then the hand. I mean, it's the hand that does it for me. It's the fact that it's such a definitive, oh no, the world is ending. Bye. Yeah. And also, like I was saying, I was kind of like, you know, they're being told... They're being told by this this group of people that actually you need to sacrifice yourself. Like you need to do this for the greater good. And I would argue until that point, you're kind of like... I mean, I would be suspicious of that. If someone's telling me it's for a greater good that I don't know about and there's, you know, some ancient gods sleeping beneath me that are going to wake up, I'm like, okay, you're telling me that, but I don't I don't actually know that. So mm-hmm. I just have to trust that this is the right thing and I'm not going to do that. Like, it's, you know, having to... Again, it's that idea of being sort of manipulated and being told that something's for the greater good when you don't know necessarily if it is for the greater good. So you're like, actually, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stop this whole power play, playing into this structure, having to be a puppet for someone else. Um, and then with that that hand at the end, it's like, no, actually, they were telling the truth. It's fucked. <laughs> now now you've, you've let everything crumble. And actually, yeah, you've fucked it. <laughs> Which is just such a beautiful final slap. Yeah. It's just like, you know, oh, you oh you thought we were kidding? You thought you were going to get a little cabin in the woods too? 
No, yeah, you're not. Absolutely no. There are no sequels. Sequels are overrated too. So maybe <laughs> that's what they're, they're they've there's an element of finality to this, which is brilliant. And it is that idea of society needs to crumble, as Marty says. Like the the makers of this film are kind of saying, you know, this these tropes, these kind of the things that we're so reliant on, the overuse of violence and sex, like maybe that needs to crumble. We have fully finished this off now. There is no way to come back from the end of the world. What are you gonna do next? What are you gonna build that's something new? We're giving people a new, a fresh starting point. So what are you gonna do? You cannot come back from this and try and spin it out and make it into something else. It's the horror genre eating itself. It is. It is literally eating itself. And um and what happens after that? And it's I think it's kind of interesting as well. I was thinking about the legacy of this film because mm-hmm. I love this film. But there obviously there is no sequel to it. No one has attempted to uh continue Cabin in the Woods 2, anything like that. Did it but did it change horror forever? It kind of didn't. No, it didn't. But and- I don't think any film that sets out expecting to change anything actually mm. gets to change anything. No. I, I think, think you're probably right, yeah. The things that ultimately have a big effect on a genre or or a style, I guess, are mm. the things that get rewatched, that get like this, mm-hmm. you know, this obsessive dedicated fandom to them. Mm. And mm. also you know that fit there's no way of predicting it you can only kind of see it sometimes if you're really attentive while it's happening but most Mm -hmm. of the time in hindsight when you Mm -hmm. can see that people were sharing a certain sensibility Mm. and you can see that in the in the work that comes out from very different types of filmmakers Mm. Mm. yeah i do i think it's in it is kind of interesting and it's not it is not linked to this film as in I don't think this is this as a result of this film this happened, but it's interesting that after this film and the subsequent sort of the ten years we've just had, there's this idea of the rise of sort of quote unquote elevated horror. So mm-hmm. we've started using horror to talk and horror has always done this, but in a way that we we're talking about sort of very real difficult topics in a not a more transparent way, but there have been a lot of films about grief and loss mm-hmm. and sexuality and racism. So I think there's still a place for sort of tongue-in-cheek and meta-horror filmmaking, but I also do kind of feel weirdly like if if I drew a line under this film and kind of went forward, there's there are more filmmakers now that are trying to do something like more human with this mm-hmm. genre. I don't know if that makes sense Actually- in me saying that, but does that... Does that make sense to you? It I'm not saying it's does. as a result of this film, but it's kind of, I think this film probably does occupy a period, a window of time in which it was almost like a slightly closed chapter. And this is the next chapter kind of going forward. Well, I do think that, you know, I'm even looking at the list of films that I've got kind of coming up and the films that were mm-hmm. coming out around the same time that we haven't yet um, discussed. But, you know, one of the, there's another episode before that, but I'm going to cover It Follows, which is 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a very, that is that shift, stylistic, yes. thematic shift of like, mm-hmm. this is no longer the type of flavor of teen horror that we've been used to for the previous you know 20 years mm-hmm. and i think i'm not sure that you can prescribe you know this is this is the effect of the cabin in no, the woods no but it does feel to your point 
and I really agree that it does feel like a like a full stop. Yeah, like you know, like we've closed the chapter, yeah. and on films like the kind of the Saw esque hostile, like Lionsgate style kind mm-hmm. of yeah, again very overly violent. Um, graphic kind of filmmaking. I mean, obviously, there's there will always be a subgenre of that filmmaking, um, and it a lot of it's you know that's still there. But it does feel like again that kind of it was like a chapter closed around this time, mm-hmm. and this new chapter has kind of opened, which I find yeah, it's like as you say, like a it kind of is a full stop. It's not this film didn't change the genre, but it it occupies very much that period of time. Though I think we were maybe reaching sort of a a climax point or an end of that style of filmmaking yeah because even at this time you know there's there's warm bodies which comes out like a year later Mm. in 2014 which is also kind of a little bit meta but it's more about zombies uh like zombie and zombies and teens i mean there's Shaun of the dead of course Mm. which also is an incredibly um meta and and kind of self-referential but works in the same way as cabin in the woods does like as a standalone finite story um i can't remember yeah. what year it was i want to say it's 2000 and i'm gonna do a very quick google it yes. is 2000 and do you say shawn of the dead it's 2004? 2004 oh holy shit 2004. oh well that was way Good ahead Lord. of its time um that's crazy yeah oh well you know and there's also you know detention uh which is mm. the same the same year the year before 2011 and then there's the final girls which we will couple cover down the line which it comes a little yeah. bit later but, I was about to say that must come a few, like a few years later. That was the yeah. other film I could kind of think of that's very meta in this way, isn't it? But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're very right. I mean, you know, when, because of the way that film production works anyway, like this mm. film, The Cabinet of Woods was shot, I think, in like 2009 and it didn't come out till mm. 2011, 2012. So uh, the same year as The Avengers. So it's not like they were yeah. made <laughs> in the same year, even. Um, it does feel like a like a line in the sand for a certain brand of of horror filmmaking for sure. Yeah. It feels also That's... like a, like a specific end to this like o- OTT torture porn esque vibe yeah. that had been so prevalent in the in the two thousands horror scene. Yeah. Absolutely. That's 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 very. You've elo- eloquently put the the very muddled thing that I was trying to get at there. <laughs> you made the point. You made the point very oh, eloquently. Um, no, I didn't at all. But you, you, yeah, you smashed it. Thanks. <laughs> so, Steph, before we wrap up our chat about the cabin in the woods, is there anything about the film that you wanted to mention that we haven't touched on? Um, I think. The only other thing that I was thinking, and it ties into a lot of the things that we were talking about, is that idea of voyeurism and mm-hmm. kind of the framing of this story um, and the idea of a, a lot of the ways, the way this film is shot, especially at the beginning, is very voyeuristic. Like there's lots of shots of kind of through trees and windows watching these teens as they're kind of put into place, you know, by the, by the puppeteers. And yeah, there's just this idea of voyeurism and, um, watching as the audience getting some kind of kick some sort of basic kick out of wanting to see suffering and violence on screen for our own kind of pointless pleasure. Um, And I don't know, part of me is it, it's not insulting, but like there's almost like a a criticism, criticism of this film as in um, 
positioning the audience as the ancient gods and then kind of Whedon and Goddard are the kind of the enslaved engineers that are sort of pulling this film together to meet a need. I don't know. There's part of that that feels like almost a little bit insulting. I don't know what you think. Hmm. I mean, I'm really into your reading of us, the audience, as the ancient gods. Mm. Although that does make you very right. That does make Whedon and Goddard, Stephen Gary. And I do not want that. At least not for that's Whedon. That's the bit that I don't like. I think that's the bit that when I was, um, yeah, having a read around this and was kind of reading their, um, their kind of take on this film. And I think they were, they were talking about it as a sort of, uh, their attempt to revitalize the, the genre and things mm-hmm. like that. I could, I was like, you know, I'd always read this film very much as a, a celebration, a tongue in cheek celebration. But part of me felt a little bit like, oh, are you saying that kind of, I don't know. But the, the way that they position themselves, if they are positioning themselves as Gary and Steve, I don't know. That, that felt a bit more like, that was the bit I didn't like. I mean, that, I really believe in the death of the author. So, like, whatever their mm. intentions were, I'm a bit like, okay, good for you. But I have yeah. my reading. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and, like I, I does fit in the style of Joss Whedon, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. As much as I appreciate a lot of the things that he's created, I do not appreciate the man himself, and no. it does feel very much like something that he would probably feel like he's inserting himself into. Yeah, it does not take away from my love for Stephen Gary and for Bradley Whitford no, and Richard no. Jenkins. Absolutely not. No, I I would prefer to keep them as pure as possible. And uh, it's certainly not my, it's not my preferred reading, but I know that it is a reading. So um, I can I see that. Interesting. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. And I think it's, it's very, it's very valid. And it makes sense. It does make sense within the context of like, who made this film as well. Mm-hmm. And in a way, like, in in some sort of way that I don't necessarily like because you know I don't like Whedon but it does <laughs> yeah. it does make sense like but also in the in conversely they're positioning themselves if we if we follow the thread of like Whedon and Goddard are Gary and Steve mm. they're cogs in the machine yeah so they're not ultimately of- you know the the myth makers they're yeah. just pushing the buttons to yeah. make the myth it's an insult to themselves really isn't <laughs> yeah it? Exactly. Like, what are you saying about your own filmmaking? Yeah. And like, and then what is the role of the director? Like, is the director, mm. who's the director? Is she, you know, is she what, like Hollywood, the Hollywood system? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Maybe. Maybe. That's, I think Maybe. that's an interesting reading. Like, you could argue I think that. There are, I, th- I think re watching this film and spending time with it this week in a way that I haven't done before because I have admittedly often watch this vid- this film because I get a kick out of all of the, the puzzles and the Easter eggs that mm-hmm. we were talking about and the humour. Like, I really enjoy it as a piece of horror comedy. And spending time thinking about it this week has, yeah, really enforced that kind of, that puzzle box idea and the fact that it's, that it's much more sophisticated than um, I probably initially gave it credit for when I first viewed it 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And also that there are so many different readings of this film and some of them I completely agree with, some of them I'm not so sure about. But it's, yeah, it actually there's a lot you can credit this film with and it's actually, I would always argue that it's it's kind of brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think we can agree on that. I think yeah. that's a great note to end on as well. <laughs> oh, good. Steph, thank you so much for your time and for your insight on The Cabin in the Woods. And if people don't follow you already, where can they find more of your work online? 
you can find me on Twitter at Steph X McKenna. Um, you can also listen to me on the Thirst podcast and The Writing Life. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for cheering me up after a very sorry week of feeling unwell. This has been a real joy. Well, it's, it's, I'm, I'm the merman in this situation. Oh, Finally appeared. Wait, does that make me Steve? <laughs> Am I Steve? I've been waiting for Anna to appear as a beautiful merman. I've been blowing my conch all week and hoping she'll appear. <laughs> I just don't even know what I'm talking about. This is this is entirely being ill. I swear to God. <laughs>